Good afternoon. I'm very pleased to welcome you to this Latrobe Asia event, Australia's foreign policy under a new government. My name is Beck Strading. I'm the director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University in Melbourne. And I would like to start the event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. They are the traditional custodians of the land upon which the Bandura campus of La Trobe University sits. Uh, I am not zooming in from Bandura today. I'm actually zooming in from Slovakia, where it is 6.30 a.m. in the morning. Uh, but I would like to pay my respect to uh, the people of the, the Kulin Nation, uh, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who are present with us today. So a year has passed since a new Labor government took power after nine years in opposition. And over this time, the new government has really prioritised the deepening of genuine partnerships with states across Asia and the Pacific. Uh, and this has been a very clear part of uh, particularly the Foreign Minister Penny Wong's narratives in the region. At the same time, Australia has made decisive moves in the name of national defence, developing a new strategy to confront current and future threats, particularly in the recently released Defence Strategic Review uh, and committing future governments to increases in defence spending, particularly under the AUKUS Pact with the United States and the United Kingdom. So what we want to talk about today is how has the Albanese government positioned Australia's foreign and defence policy in its first year of power? How is this approach consistent with or different from uh, the previous government or the previous three uh, governments uh, under the coalition over the nine years? And have relationships with states across Asia and the Pacific improved or deteriorated? And how do we know whether they have improved or deteriorated. So I'm really delighted to be joined uh, today by our expert panel uh, to discuss uh, the, the foreign policy, defence policy under the Labor government. So I'd like to welcome Professor Peter Dean, who is the Director of Foreign Policy and Defence at the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. I'd also like to welcome Yun Jiang, who is uh, a China Matters Fellow at the Australian Institute for International Affairs. Welcome, Yun. And I'd also like to welcome Kevin McGee, who is a former ambassador and also an adjunct fellow in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy here at La Trobe University. Welcome again, Kevin. So what I'm going to do to start is I'm going to begin by asking our panel the same question. What do you consider to be the defining feature of Labor's foreign and defence policy one year into government? What has changed and what has stayed the same? So, Yun, I might start with you, if I may. What's your approach to this question? Well, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. And I'm speaking from Canberra, um, the land of Ngunnawal and Nambri people where um, in the ACT, we actually had a, a Reconciliation Day public holiday yesterday as well. I, From my perspective, the defining feature of foreign policy uh, under this government is that the foreign minister, as well as the Department of the Foreign Affairs and Trade, has much more power inside the bureaucracy and the cabinet. Um, so this perhaps is a, a bit of a very Canberra uh, a point. Um, under the Prime Minister Morrison, uh, Maurice Payne, um, the foreign minister back then, was not 
very powerful. And uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade was often sidelined inside the bureaucracy, whereas uh, other departments like the Department, Foreign, uh, Department of Home Affairs was much more powerful. Now, in the new government, uh, the current Labour government, Ms. Wong, Minister Wong, Minister Penny Wong, is a senior and influential minister uh, inside the government, as well as inside the party itself. Um, the foreign minister is now on the expenditure review committee, which means that uh, the foreign affair, uh, she, she has a say, basically, on the budget. Um, the Labour government has re-established the role of the assistant minister for foreign affairs, which previously was called the parliamentary secretary under Abbott, but that role was has been was abolished um, under uh, the previous uh, previous uh, few governments, but it has been re-established. So uh, clearly, the uh, the foreign affairs portfolio has expanded. The minister for Pacific and Development is now on the National Security Committee, uh, so has a say on some of the most important foreign policy and national security decisions. And the cloud of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade within the bureaucracy has also increased as a direct result. So other departments now actually take into account what the department says. So this means that international relations have become more important in consideration when it comes to national interests and priorities. And that also means that a bit more balanced when thinking about policies. Uh, so national security is no longer the dominant angle. I think the second one is that diplomacy is back on the menu. Uh, previously, I think diplomacy has been more of a dirty word. You know, negotiations and compromises was uh, portrayed a bit like weaknesses um, under the former government, uh, while some of the uncompromising tough talks uh, was perhaps a preferred tool. But now, um, you know, finding neutral grounds uh, appears to be back in fashion. So the differences from the Previous government for me, uh, there are three uh, I can think of. One is that a stronger focus on neighborhoods, so Southeast Asia and Pacific, and you'll see a lot of ministers travel uh, to these regions. Uh, second one, I think, is the emphasis on Australia's First Nations as well as migrant identities. And that's very um, happy for me to see as a migrant myself. Um, so that my experience being reflected uh, in our foreign policy. And of course, we have the ambassador for First Nations people now. And uh, as Minister Wong often said that the First Nations people are Australia's first diplomats and something uh, we should learn from. And this also have a benefit connecting um, with, uh, foster a close connection with Pacific countries as well. Um, but, I think for me, similarities from previous government include, you know, continuation of AUKUS. And from that, I believe that the, the, the current government still, to an extent, support uh, U.S. primacy and leadership in the region. So that has been a continuation. And also it has continued to be a bit rosy-eyed about certain countries when it comes to human rights and democracy uh, so, for example, we had a recent visit from the Prime Minister of India and uh, the Foreign Minister and the Prime Minister was uh, a bit more hesitant in raising certain issues with countries that we perceive to be more close partners. And I'll leave it like that. Thank you.
Thank you. That's a great overview. I particularly like the way that you map out the bu- the bureaucratic relationships because, you know, this is something that I've been thinking about. Well, yes, um, it seems like the foreign minister has more power and clout in government, but to, to actually get a sense of how that matters within the bureaucracy is really helpful. But Kevin, I might turn to you now. Thank you. Um, you know, we've had a we've had a really great overview um, from Yun, but what are your thoughts on the the, the similarities and differences? I mean, I primarily see the uh, a continuity between this government and uh, the previous government on on a lot of issues, particularly those in the national security field, which I, in my view, continues to dominate do, uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 approach that Australia is taking to the region. On the positive side, well, certainly the foreign minister has been a lot more active than her predecessor. Uh, as you probably know, she's visited nine of the 10 ASEAN countries. Myanmar or Burma is the only exception. And she's been to all of uh, the major um, Pacific Island countries that Australia has close relations with. So there's been an emphasis there. And there's certainly been more, more uh, action uh, part of that was the nature of the former foreign minister, but also the fact that she was li- working uh, a long time during the COVID period. So it was very difficult to travel and to go to many of these countries. Um, so I see that that is one thing where it's a lot more active. Um, I, I do see a certain continuity. And uh, from my perspective, uh, and for looking at, I, I still think that the overall dominance of national security over diplomacy is still in place. It's changed in some sort of degree, but very, very much. And you'll see that with the DSR, and we'll hear from Peter Dean uh, in a few minutes about that. But the approach that it's had and the fact that the foreign minister in many of her statements uh, and her actions um, have been quite contradictory to what she was saying before when she was in opposition, for example, on on the issue of... um, supporting uh, a multipolar um, approach where both uh, China and the United States would have a say in the, re- in the, in the region, very much more uh, attracted to or attached to the, uh, the, um, the more traditional view that Australia has, that its most important relationship is with the United States. And that national security uh, tends to trump all that. And we can get into that about the relationship. There have been some attempts to to, uh, shall I say, ameliorate the relationship with China, and I can get into that in greater detail later on. Uh, and, and to a certain extent, that's been successful, but it, it's not a complete breakthrough. There's still a lot of tensions uh, in the relationship with China. So the point I was just basically saying, and this was Hugh White pointed this out in an article in the, the, the Monthly last week, that many of the things that she said in opposition, she's not actually carrying out uh, in, in government. So there's a certain continuity uh, from the, the Morrison government. So that's where I, I'd like to start by saying in you know, my general view of where we are. On the position of the foreign minister, well, yes, certainly she's more senior than Senator Payne was, but she's also operating in a post-COVID environment, which Payne wasn't operating in. Um, and uh, the other factor is, yes, they, uh, they've talked about giving more resources to DFAT and such. Well, um, in many ways, that will just be making up the cuts that have been done over the last 10 years, uh, uh, rather than creating uh, really new breakthroughs. And I still also, just in conclusion, see that uh, I think that in in the position, diplomacy may be back, but it's not 
the be all and end all that it once was in our dealings with the Asia. The national security approach seems to still be dominant. Thank you, Kevin. Now, you mentioned that the DSR and Peter Dean, uh, key author of the DSR, is, is with us. And there's a lot to unpack from, from the, the last uh, 10 minutes or so of conversation. There's a couple of things that, that I think are quite interesting that I wanted to ask you about, and that's you mentioned primacy uh, and the idea of US primacy, uh, and Kevin mentioned multipolarity. I mean, how does a, this, this government see order in the region? Uh, because there seems to be a lot of conversations about the distribution of power in the region. Uh, so what, what's your view on that issue? Thanks, Beck, and thanks, everyone. And uh, I'm coming to you from the, the land of the Gadigal people today. Um, if, if you don't mind, I'll, uh, my colleagues have had a, a grasp of the continuity, so I'll have a crack at that and then come to your question. So I, I agree with Kevin about a lot of continuity, and Yulm definitely about the whole profile nature of what's going on. So, I mean, the foreign minister is also the leader of the government in the Senate. The defence minister is also the deputy prime minister. And the Defence Industry Minister is also the Minister for the Pacific. And we know that the Deputy Prime Minister used to be Minister for the Pacific and stuff. So there's a bit of there's a lot of clout that's coming in this particular government um, with that. I think my take on what we're seeing um, in the foreign affairs and defence sector is reflective of the Albanese government as a whole. It's reflective of how they are attempting to govern. It's pragmatic, it's systematic, it's not rushed, it's calculated. It's focused, and a lot of it is about delivering on commitments they said they would do from opposition, you know, even though agreeing with Kevin that the Penny's views on things, I think, have, have altered a little bit, and I think that's reflective of being in, in opposition and being in government. The focus on the region, we know the focus on Southeast Asia and the South Pacific has been really important. We've mentioned, it's already been mentioned, Penny Wong's higher tempo, but also her language. Now, they're in the region talking in the South Pacific about climate change. They're in, she's in Southeast Asia talking about strategic equilibrium and about sovereignty, which we know is prized by the states in Southeast Asia. She's been very good on her public diplomacy. And, you know, she's gone to the United Kingdom and spoken to them about they, how they need to grasp with their colonial past and they need to deal with that, which is another issue that's of particular importance to Southeast Asia and the South Pacific. So I think it's also the language. Um, the, de the Deputy Prime Minister is a very pragmatic, a very considered politician, and he's brought that. He's, you know, the DSR was announced, AUKUS was announced and followed through. There's been an emphasis on speed, but not rushing. And he's been, him and the government have been very measured in their, in their response to that. And I totally agree with Kevin on the levels of continuity. I think there is a lot of continuity, especially, say, on our policy towards China, but the approach and the rhetoric and the emphasis on more on diplomacy and not megaphone diplomacy. And this comes into this notion that the DSR does talk about, which is about statecraft, right, which is bringing together all the elements of our national power and to focus on how we present ourselves in the international sphere. And it's fascinating that you've seen Penny Wong give speeches that half of it could have been given by the Defence Minister. And you'd see the Defence Minister give speeches of which half of which probably in the past would have been given by the Foreign Minister. And they're working very, very closely together. And I think that's that's a reassuring thing. Focus on the on the regional balance and managing great power competition, I think, which goes to your point. So the DSR and the government and has specifically come out and said the US does not have primacy anymore in our region. That is now a stated and agreed government position. 
And in fact, Penny Wong gave a, a speech at the press club the week before the DSI came out, in which the title of the speech was the you know, Australian interest in a regional balance of power. So they're very focused on managing great power competition. They're very focused on the, the, the order. The, the order is changing in the region. But I thought what Penny Wong was really clear in that speech about is the type of order we don't want to see, which is a hierarchical order with another state with primacy who can impose that hierarchy and remove sovereignty from states. And she coached that very much in the term that this is what other states in the region want as well. That we can, you know, we want a balance of power. We want to live with a balance of power that means peace and prosperity for all of us. It's not about US hegemony or restoring US hegemony, but it's also about ensuring that any other state who has a more hierarchical view of that order can't impose its will upon the rest of the region. So I think, you know, a combination of continuity, um, but a very different approach and style um the way they're doing it and the one thing i will give just a little bit of another shout out to is the domestic international interface what's been really brought home for us is in the cyber domain for instance you know the, the cyber attacks that we've had from overseas which are affecting us domestically and that's brought home affairs and claire o'neill um into this and of course the attorney general's department highlighting sort of information and misinformation you know we've had um the head of asio come out and say we're now in an era where foreign intelligence services are undertaking you know, espionage and foreign interference at levels never seen in Australia, even during the Cold War. And I think that reinforces this notion of the strategic competition that we're living in and the type of environment that we're living in and that intersection between the domestic realm of um, uh, what's happening in Australia and the foreign policy and defence realm. So I'll stick with you for the the minute, Peter. I mean, the two key defence announcements under the Albanese government, I would argue, are the AUKUS announcement in March, where it outlined the the pathway to um, to procuring nuclear powered submarines, and then of course the Defence Strategic Review in April. And the commentary around these two developments has just been staggering uh, in terms of the the opinions uh, that that people. Uh, within the national security community and beyond the national security uh, security community have around these two developments. But as somebody uh, intimately involved with drafting the DSR, can you give us a sense of what it tells us about Australia's priorities and the priorities of the Labor government in particular? Yeah, so first of all, I think we, we've got the continuity. So um, it was 2020 that the Morrison government released the Defence Strategic Update. That was an update that basically said, you know, we're living in a very different strategic world. We're living in the world, an age of strategic competition, which is coming to, to define our era. And that, in many respects, is a much more dangerous world and a dangerous era. And the government accepted that. There's a lot of continuity between that. They went into government saying we accept what the DSU said. And their concern was that we don't have a roadmap of what to do about that. So... With the exception of the announcement of the, you know, the AUKUS agreement. And I think we can all say that that took everyone by surprise. It has to have probably been the best kept secret in Australian defence and foreign policy history that it took the entire region by surprise. So it took so many people by surprise. A lot of people were very upset because there was a lack of, you know, clarity on what it meant and why it was happening and stuff. We saw the government um, lean very heavily into this AUKUS announcement. I think it was something like 63 countries that they had bilateral meetings with or phone calls that were made by the senior leadership to ensure that the region was very well informed on this. But again, that's another one of their election commitments. They committed in opposition to the AUKUS agreement and they've delivered what 
I would regard as it's a very high risk, but potentially very high reward um, outcome. And linked that back then into the strategic need about the changing strategic circumstances and the defining feature of great power competition um, in our region. The government's come out with there from the DSR six sort of priorities, so which is obviously the nuclear-powered submarines, the, the focus on precision and long-range strike, um, the northern network of bases, people, workforce, um, industry partnerships, um, and developing and deepening our defence um, partnerships. And I think, uh, funnily enough, again, because of this sort of notion of statecraft and the foreign minister and defence minister working together, I actually think one of the, the best articulations of government's priorities and government's direction with this would have to be Penny Wong's speech at the Press Club on the 17th of April this year. I think this is where she really lays out or crafts out, and the, and the, the speech is called Australia's Interest in a Regional Balance of Power. I think that gives you really clear that they're really concerned about this balance of power. They're concerned about that, um, that great power competition, and they're trying to craft out what are Australia's interests in that. Um, many, many respects, I would say that's the first speech of the DSR because it, it lays out a lot of the concepts and the ideas that comes down, but it wraps it up in a much broader statecraft element. And of course, the DSR says up front and centre, which a lot of people have, you know, Melissa Colleen Tyler and others have pointed out, it's very rare you see a defence document come out and say fund the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and they actually have to lead the statecraft and the foreign policy and be returned to that position within our government. Um, but it talks about, you know, because of the nature of what we're in now, it's about all elements of national power to contribute to what we do and how we present ourselves in the region. About And that's all focused um, at, you know, maintaining peace, the attempt to shape the region, to avoid that hierarchical region that Penny Wong and the government has spoken about. Um, and deterring aggression and coercion by ensuring that there's a sufficient balance and really heavy emphasis on Australia working with allies and partners. Now, both the DSR and the Foreign Minister's other speech and AUKUS all points to a growing relationship with the United States. But I'd also point to the growing relationship we've had with countries like Japan and India, but also Indonesia, the South Pacific countries, Singapore and many others. And this is a continuity of going back to how the Morrison, Abbott and, and Turnbull governments uh, I'm stretching my memory here, but I think it's something like nine or 10 or 11 strategic partnerships Australia has signed with key countries in the Indo-Pacific in about the last five or six or seven years. Um, so it's very much emphasis on, on building relationships broadly across the region. And as Penny Wong keeps speaking about, she's saying that the image she's presenting is an image that when she goes around the region is a view of the region that other states support. So I think it's also coaching it within. This is a broadly accepted view. Her notion, she calls it strategic equilibrium. You know, I'm a strategic studies scholar. I talk about more about the strategic balance. Um, and then underpinning our diplomacy has to be deterrence and has to be, um, you know, military balance to ensure that um, coercion can't be used against a particular any particular state or including Australia. And we know we've been subject to trade coercion the Deputy Prime Minister talks a lot about, um, you know, the growth of Chinese capabilities in the military realm, which have not been transparent and have been very opaque. So I think you get um, you know, a real sense from that speech about the government's focus. I know it's been criticised for not doing a whole range of other things, but, um, you know, mal ba managing the changing balance of power in the region is not an insignificant task. You know, we're living, as Alan Gingell said, you know, a few years ago, that everyone likes to say we live in a new and important and interesting era. 
He goes, but this time it's actually really true. Like now we're living in an era where the Indo-Pacific is a strategic centre of gravity and we've got great power competition on our doorstep. So it does make this significantly different. And that makes the tasks and role for our government in foreign and defence policy significantly different too. Yeah, Kevin, I might bring you in here. I mean, you mentioned in your opening comments the real focus on national security and defence. And, you know, we led with the, uh, the the government led with the DSR, which I think is reflective of that. Uh, but how do you think this has an effect on regional relationships? And have you seen uh, an improvement in terms of Australia's approach to foreign policy? Because the other thing that's happened is there's been a DFAT capability review as well. Well, I mean, as I said before about the capability of you, just to get that out of the way, really what that is, is just making up for the cuts that have been going back for the last for 10 years. So in reality, it's really not any big deal in reality. Let's be frank. It's just making up for what's been lost before. But leaving that aside, look, I would say I think that um, there is, well, my former colleague Richard Maud at the Asia Society said that AUKUS and, uh, and the position this government has taken has caused quite a bit of, shall I say, concern or uh, even um, worry uh, among our regional neighbours. And that's reflected also by people who have written on this, like a former Singaporean um, uh, secretary, uh, secretary of their Foreign Affairs Department. Um, in March and April, I did a series of interviews with high commissioners and ambassadors from the Asian region in Canberra. And I found that, that generally you could summarize it in saying that the feeling in, in regional countries was more of a tolerance rather than any great warmth or exception uh, to the, uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the approach that the government was taking. Uh, about that. And it was also seen generally an approach that uh, was one which was moving Australia away from the future, but to the past, back to the Britain and to uh, the US and an emphasis on that and an emphasis, despite what the DSR says, it really is about maintaining American prim primacy. It's really not about getting any sort of balance in, in the region, the, that thing. And, I mean, I have just quoted a quote here from, I won't mention it, but the ambassador allowed me to say this, but what is an Asian ambassador? And he said the ambassador commented that Australia should be trying to work diplomatically with China than rather than add to a regional arms race. He was critical of Australia inviting the British back into the regional security regions like we were living in 1923 rather than 2023. It makes Australia look dependent on Anglo partners from outside the region. And the ambassador added there was non-proliferation concerns with AUKUS. So there is a lot of concerns around about what has been done in the region. Uh, a lot of it, it hasn't been, um, it, it's underlying, it's an underlying uneasiness about all of that. And it's also a recognition that Australia basically has tied its horses very much to the American cart and that uh, with AUKUS and with the DSR, we're very much moving in that direction. So there's actually a sort of a contra inherent contradiction in when we talk about what Wong talks about, uh, you know, in getting, uh, working with the region. But at the same time, we're actually 
moving in one direction and moving beyond you know where we are and closer to the united states in defense interoperability interchangeability all of these various areas and the other thing i would say too is that the government has and and peter's right to say changed its rhetoric and in doing that it has been that the chinese have been willing since the end of 2021 to talk to us it's moved that and we're now we're able to do it and we've had some serious breakthroughs but fundamentally um, and there, I could go in deep depth if you want later about the four, what I see is the four contradictions in the relationship between Australia and China. But one that's been fixed the most easily is rhetoric. And the rhetoric has, has, has actually allowed us to get some, move forward into a more normal sort of diplomatic relationship with China, moved away from the sort of uh, confrontational position that was occurring before. However, because of our position on strategic issues, uh, it's not a complete change or a complete solving of the relationship. There's always going to be things that flow on from our strategic position and the contradiction and the direction that we have moved, uh, you know, uh, with uh, AUKUS and with uh, the DSR and such. It's a fundamental contradiction, which causes concerns in the region, but most importantly is an obstacle in us having a, full relationship with China and getting the full benefits for the relationship, potential economic and other benefits from the uh, relationship. I could accept, like now this is limited time. I can expand on this a little bit more and the four contradictions as I see and write about. Um, but that's basically how I see it. Uh, thank you, Kevin. And I'll, I will come back to you, Peter, because I saw your shaking of the head and it's always good to have different points of view. Uh, but Ewan, I wanted to get to you to to to, to ask you about uh, Australia's China policy. You are um, the AIIA's uh, China fellow. Uh, so how do we evaluate uh, its policy under the new government? I mean, certainly, as Kevin mentioned, the rhetoric has shifted, and that seems to be uh, a really important um, element of the relationship. Uh, trade seems to have been, you know, never stronger uh, in the sense that um, it's actually as, as high, exports to China are, are as high as they've ever been. Uh, it seems seems interesting that there's uh, this rapprochement with China uh, while at the same time Albanese government carries some of those really core coalition government initiatives such as AUKUS and Quad. Uh, so in your view, is the relationship thawing? Um, and if it is thawing, what is driving it? Is, it? is this about something that the new Australian government is doing differently? Or is this the Chinese side being being like, well, actually, uh, we want to, you know, we, we want to improve relationships with Australia. In my view, it is definitely thawing the the bilateral relationship, and it is driving by it's driven by uh, both the Australia side and the China side, as well as the changing international environment. So China has indicated. Um, to Australia that it was willing to improve the relationship even before the election. There has been some signals that uh, it wants uh, a thawing of the relationship. And the new government gave it the opportunity to do it at a faster pace. Um, so the, the election was kind of a break that allows change to occur a bit more faster than it would otherwise. And why would China do that? Well, 
I think China has not really been successful in its approach to Australia in the past. Um, its hardline approach has led to worsening relationship with almost all countries in the West. And a lot of countries, especially the richer Western countries, uh, have become more antagonistic towards China rather than, say, being more compliant, as perhaps it was expecting uh, Australia to do. So it potentially realised that it was not in its interest to isolate itself from the West. Um, even though, you know, in the recent years, it perhaps has been put more uh, effort into improving relationship with the global South, um, perhaps as a way to replace its uh, a bit more uh, antagonistic relationship with the West. But uh, I think it's realizing that it can't just isolate, isolate itself from the West. Now, from Australia's side, it was um, the Labour government was more keen to improve relationship with China than the coalition. But it is also important to remember that the Morrison government's approach to China was actually not a traditional uh, liberal approach, the coalition approach either. So compare, you know, Morrison to, say, Howard or Abbott or Temple, it was quite different as well. And under the Morrison government, China has been used as a way to prioritize national security above pretty much all other considerations. But it proved to be not electorally popular. And its antagonistic approach to China was uh, cited as one of the factors that it lost the national election. So when Labour came in, it seized opportunities to thaw uh, or in what says stabilize uh, the, the bilateral relationship. Um, of course, it could have done it differently. It could have done it a, a bit more slowly or a bit more uh, faster as some people perhaps would want to see. Uh, but it took that uh, way forward, it took that signal and, and, and stabilized the relationship as we have seen. But, and on this point, on the, we, we keep talking about this uh, multipolarity, US primacy, and uh, unfortunately, I, I think I, I will have to agree more with Kevin and uh, disagree a little bit with Peter here, that uh, uh, from my perspective, um, the Labour government is still supporting U.S. primacy despite the rhetoric of multipolarity. And yes, I, I totally agree that Penny Wong's speeches have said about how this is an era of multipolarity. Uh, now we're living in a world of multipolar world. But when you look at the fact that we're continuing with AUKUS, and I acknowledge the fact that it is a bit, it's, it's hard to cancel AUKUS because we're already um, cancel agreement with French. We can't, we can't, we can hardly cancel another agreement straight away. But the rationale of AUKUS is to support the United States in a potential war with China. And that's the rationale, and we're continuing with that. So I think that that's, that sends a signal to China that we are supporting the U.S. primacy in the region. And the fact that we cancelled Quad because the U.S. president couldn't make it instead of continuing on does seem to indicate that the U.S. is the, uh, the important part in the whole arrangement. 
So as the chair, I wonder whether I get a vote here uh, because uh, there's uh, uh, one of the one of the, the issues here is whether the United States sees itself as having primacy in the region, and that is uh, debatable. I mean, Peter, I'm pretty convinced by an argument that you have made in some of your work that integrated deterrence is a sign uh, that the US maybe doesn't even see itself as having primacy in the region, and the second point I'd probably make about AUKUS is, is certainly I think that Australia um, wants to anchor the United States in the region as much as possible and that this is about deepening the relationship, the Capital A Alliance as stated in the DSR, but it's also about nuclear-powered submarines uh, and it's about technology sharing and that's probably I think something that that, that should enter the, the conversation at this point. So Peter, I'll go back to you and get your thoughts on those issues? Sure. Well, funnily enough, I don't agree with that proposition. I mean, to me, the notion that it's all about supporting primacy is conjecture. There's, there's no evidence to support that. The DSR, very clear about this, the era of US primacy is over. And US policy, which is based around integrated deterrence, is about enabling and working with allies and partners to maintain a regional balance of power. Now, if you accept that there is multipolarity in the region, that does not mean you have to treat the United States and China or Japan or any other state equally. What the government has made really clear is accepts that there's multipolarity. What it needs to do is work towards maintaining and Australia's contribution to maintaining a strategic balance and a military balance to ensure peace and prosperity. And whenever these conversations also happen, I find it really interesting that no one often talks about Chinese behaviour since 2013. If you look at their record in the South China Sea, their record in the East China Sea, in Xinjiang province, what they've done in Hong Kong, what they've done in trade coercion against Australia, what they've done in the 14 demands that they've put on Australia, th this, is, this is not behaviour that is conducive to an equitable partnership or agreeing, like dealing with Australia on, a, on an equal diplomatic standing. I think Penny Wong's absolutely right. We cooperate with China where we can. We disagree when we must. And we always pursue Australian strategic interests. And my travels around, I was in the US recently, not one single person, a government official or a think tank person, challenged the DSR on the notion the US does not have primacy. And it is a fallacy to say that the AUKUS submarine deal is about supporting US primacy, or it is about going to war with China. It is about deterrence. Is about a maritime nation having capabilities to provide its own self-reliant deterrent effect. And if any naval strategist and any submarine in the world would give you a blank piece of paper and a map of Australia and say design a submarine force, then nuclear-powered submarines make tactical, operational and strategic sense. The AUKUS pact is a technological sharing pact and that is what it is. It's not an alliance. It's not an agreement. And it is not. No one, I mean, no one in their right mind would want to go to war with China. And I also don't believe the Chinese want to go to war with anybody else in the region. But the best way, the best way to secure that is make sure that there's a regional strategic and military balance where no power, in my view, feels it has military overmatch and therefore can solve its issues in the international sphere using force or coercion. And that's what this is faced about. I mean, the simple fact remains that over the last 15 years, China has constructed 12 nuclear-powered submarines 
and are planning on constructing another 18. Australia acquiring eight nuclear-powered submarines in the 2040s is not contribution to an arms race. There is only one country undertaking an unprecedented, massive, world's largest military expansion in the Indo-Pacific, and that's China. US military capabilities in the region have basically not changed for the last few years. China, uh, sorry, Japan has also uh, made the same view on the strategic environment as increasing its defence spending because of its concern about Chinese military modernisation and expansion. So the facts don't bear out that there is there is an arms race going on in this region. Only one country is racing. A bunch of other countries are attempting to adjust some of their um, military capabilities in response to that. And I'll also point out that South Korea, India, Pakistan, Thailand, the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, Taiwan and Singapore are all acquiring submarines as well. So thanks, Peter. Um, Kevin, I might bring you in. I mean, I know that there's disagreement on this point on uh, US primacy, but I would like us to talk about Taiwan uh, because some of the messaging around Australia uh, and, and what might happen uh, if there is a conflict over Taiwan. Uh, some of the messaging around that has been quite intense uh, over the last few years. So what I wanted to ask is, do you think that uh, Australia, in, in event, in, in the event that the United States gets involved in uh, a conflict around Taiwan with China, uh, do you think that Australia uh, will uh, will be forced to be involved? in that conflict and to what extent would that involvement take or do you still see that there are that Australia has strategic options when it comes to a contingency in Taiwan well I would say there's not much I agree with Peter Dean on but there's one thing I do agree with him is that China does not want to start a war and neither does the United States but the certain behavior and it's a bit uh of of various countries could lead to a situation where there is some sort of mistake that could lead to uh, confrontation. Look, the issue with Taiwan is primarily a political issue, not a military issue. Uh, the, the the concept of Taiwan returning to the mainland, you know, reunification is something that has been going on since 1949. It's been there. And for a long period of time, as you probably well know, the, uh, the KMT government in Taiwan said it was going to retake the mainland. Now, Taiwan, the core issue is that in Taiwan, an, a sense of Taiwanese separateness, a sense of Taiwanese nationalism has built up over the years. And so the, the original concept that Taiwan was part of China, which was held by the KMT government and by the communists, uh, is no longer uh, current from the perspective of the Taiwanese. Uh, but China largely sees itself as being uh, peaceably reuniting with China. It, its goals primarily are to see a peaceful reunification. However, it has always maintained the right that it could use military force. And it's been saying that for a long, long, long time. Um, I think there's a lot of overstatement about the dangers of uh, of Chinese military action against and being imminent against against Taiwan. It's always possible. Um, no one could rule that out, but it's not something that is imminent. Uh, I think 
it would require some sort of very provocative action uh, by the Taiwanese or by the Americans or by the Chinese to lead to armed forces on that. Coming back to what you were saying before, whether we would be getting involved or not, we would only be getting involved uh, would be primarily if the if our alliance with the United States brought us into, into this conflict. Uh, and this is where I think a lot of people differ from the view about AUKUS and the view about the, the, being, the maintenance of American primacy and the use of these submarines sometime in the future. You know, potentially, and there are many, many commentators who say this, and many diplomats who say this, that this potentially could drag us in, in, into a conflict over Taiwan in the future. But I'm much more optimistic that the status quo will continue for quite some time, um, subject to there not being a very provocative act. Now, now the Taiwanese government, the DPP government, are very smart. They know they're intelligent. They know what the situation, they know how far they can go uh, without provoking the mainland while maintaining their de facto independence. And that's basically what they, the way they've worked worked on that. They haven't gone over the red lines that the Chinese have set down, down for Taiwan. Uh, and one last point, uh, and this tend to indicate the sort of hysteria that we have in Australia about the China threat. Um, polling indicates that there's a higher percentage of people in Australia who think China uh, uh, could attack Australia than there's a higher percentage among Taiwanese of the threat of a Taiwan, uh, Chinese attack on Taiwan. A lot of that's due to the media and the various things we all know about the various media uh, talk uh, about that. But that's uh, an interesting fact, you know, to, to put this in, in context uh, about Australia's position vis-a-vis -vis China and also the Taiwanese position vis-a-vis -vis China. So we have a question uh, in the Q&A. Keep your questions coming through, but I might um, direct it to Yun. This is a question about uh, the sort of uh, inconsistencies uh, as, as the, the, the audience member sees it in Australian foreign policy in uh, accepting uh, sort of authoritarian leaders uh, in India and in other countries, uh, but maybe ostracising other authoritarian leaders. So if I can kind of reshape that into a question question. Uh, if we think about India continues to be a really important uh, country for Australia, for how Australia, the, the government sees Australian foreign policy. Is there a, an issue in Australia sometimes turning a blind eye uh, to, to things that, that some leaders do uh, and yet sort of making a bigger deal about similar actions in other countries? Thank you for that question. Um, Yes, I do think it is a, a big problem. Now, on a personal level, uh, of course, I would like to see, as an individual, I would like to see the government be more consistent, advocating for human rights everywhere and pointing out human rights abuses in, you know, in Palestine, in Xinjiang, in Kashmir, everywhere. Um, and that is my personal preference. But as a government, when, when government makes decisions, it must make decisions in the national interest. And one part of the national interest is improving relationship with certain countries. And the previous government, as well as the current government, believes that a positive relationship with countries like India is rather important because India um, could be uh, a partner um, in 
a potential containment of China. And that's why when Prime Minister Modi comes to Australia, there was a, a, a almost a, like a, a rally in a, in a stadium where the, the, the uh, where Albanese uh, said Prime Minister Modi was the boss. Now, of course, there are a lot of human rights concerns against uh, ethnic minorities, against Muslims, uh, and the Hindu ideology um, in India which was, is promoted by the current um, Indian government. But uh, the Australian government chooses not to highlight those. Uh, on the other hand, we do highlight um, human rights abuses by certain other countries. So there is a bit of inconsistency. Um, but uh, I guess when the government, the government makes decisions on who to criticize and who not to criticize, uh, they do taking into account uh, other factors and not just about human rights concerns. Thank you. And Peter, I might uh, bring you in here. There is a question about um, the necessity for, of nuclear powered submarines. One of the things that, that strikes me uh, is some of the messaging around why Australia needs nuclear powered submarines has not been perhaps prosecuted as well as what um, it should have been. Uh, so it, particularly in terms of, um, you know, spending what looks to be, you know, vast sums of money, the $368 billion is the, the figure that, that, that gets used, uh, is actually part of the issue here is how do you sell this uh, to, to the public? Uh, but the other thing I wanted to bring you in on is your views on the Taiwan question, because this is going to be one that is significant uh, for, for Australia into the future. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Beck. And look, Kevin and I disagree on a lot of things, but we do agree on some things. And look, the Taiwan question, absolutely. I don't think China really wants to go to war over Taiwan. I don't think the US or the Taiwanese or Australia wants to. I think the question is, for a long time on the Taiwan issue, was the question, would the PRC go to war to stop Taiwanese declaring independence. Now the question is often asked is, is the PRC willing to use force to reunify Taiwan? And the reason I think that question has been rising and is being asked a lot more is because um, of the gr massive growth in Chinese military capability, which means it's, it's more possible for them to use military force and be successful. And the intent that Xi Jinping has said, so if you listen to a lot of his speeches, he talks about key dates in 2027, key anniversaries in 2030 and 2033 around these. Now, the question is, how much is that rhetoric or how much is that an intent statement? And that's what we don't know. And I think that's largely what's fueling all of these tensions. What I, what I feel a little bit more secure about, and I, I agree with Kevin, there's been far too much hysteria about in in the Australian media and in our debates about China, far too much. I'm a you know bit of a hard nosed defence realist, but I absolutely agree the rhetoric has not been good and not positive to contributing to to the debate in Australia. But you know Xi Jinping has to wake up every morning if he decides to use force, and if he's not successful, that would most likely cost him his reign and rule, the Communist Party's rule over China, and the hundreds and thousands of lives of Chinese citizens in the military hundreds of thousands in Taiwan, ruin the economy of the Indo-Pacific and send the global economy into recession. That is a big gamble. That is an enormous gamble. And I, I don't think he wants to do that. I really don't. But I agree with Kevin, the great risk we have here is miscalculation, misunderstanding or something going wrong in the region. And I would be much more secure if all sides in this 
could come like we did in the in the cold war to some agreed ways of avoiding these things kevin rudd's spoken about this in his book and others we need more guardrails i am absolutely on board with that type of approach because no one wants to go down this path but i think it is prudent for australia japan and others to also hedge their bets by increasing where, where needed to a modest extent their military capability hopefully doing that in a clear transparent and open way so it doesn't induce you know anyone in the region to create a security spiral um, on this type of stuff um on the orcas nuclear submarine deal look i think the government hasn't been as clear as they could be about the strategic rationale for this. I think there's a very clear, I've written about this, the USSC, there's a very clear conceptual and strategic rationale. Um, the biggest driver of this is that conventional class submarines are becoming more and more difficult to operate because of the intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance um, environment. They're becoming much more vulnerable and that moving to a nuclear class submarine gives much more capability to operate in Australian waters much more capability to operate in this deterrence and denial approach that the DSR talks about. So the very big focus on Australia's defence strategy that the government has endorsed is not on fighting wars up in East Asia, but in providing for the defence of Australia and doing it through a denial and deterrence posture, um, and particularly focus on Australia's near, near region, which the DSR, um, which DSR lines out. So... Um, the government could do a better job at selling that. I know the government is falling a little bit back at the moment on the talking this is about a jobs program. It's always about the industry and the jobs um, and that type of thing. I think there needs to be a better case made for the strategic rationale and argument. And it does go back to a, a statement from Scott Morrison when he was prime minister. And when this decision was immediately made, he went and spoke to the defence chiefs. He went and spoke to the Navy. And they were unanimous in their view that a diesel electric submarine was becoming more and more difficult to operate and to achieve what we need, and a nuclear-powered submarine could do that better. Now, just on the on the money thing very quickly, people are forgetting that that $368 billion, don't get me wrong, is a very big number. It's a very big number, and any number like that for any public policy issue has to have a lot of scrutiny in a democracy, and it deserves tough scrutiny and to being followed. What it is, though, it's a holistic number. So people are going, oh, but the French submarines were going to cost us 90 billion. Well, actually, they weren't because they didn't include all the maintenance, sustainment, weapons, training cost. The French submarines were going to cost us about $250 billion, which is the actual bottom end. People forget there's also a range the government gave from $250 to $360 billion was the range of the $100 billion contingency in there. So the French submarines were going to give us less capability for the same number at the bottom end. And some other people are advocating, and Hugh White's been mentioned before, Hugh's very much of the view that we shared 24 nuclear, uh, sorry, 24 conventional submarines. The cost of that would be, and I've done an estimate of this, about $450 billion and tripling the size of our submarine force. So there's lots of debate about this, but sometimes there's not a lot of clarity. The, the, you know, numbers are like statistics, you know, damn lies, damn lies and statistics. But we can get some baselines on the numbers. And if we're talking about the conventional submarines we're going to get, that's that's $250 billion price tag. That's on the on the public record through Senate estimates. So that the, the number is big, but it's not as big as I think people are saying. And of course, it's over a, I think, 30 or 40 year investment period. So that's that's the thing that needs to be taken into account as well. Yeah. Just one I just wanted to say something. Um about uh i agree with peter he mentioned about a war in, in taiwan uh would cause a recession i mean 
some of the uh, people I've been talking to calculate, it would cause the biggest depression in Australian economy. Uh, Australian economy would probably lose 30 to 50 percent in the event of a full-scale war with Taiwan. So it's a disastrous from an economic point of view to get involved in that too. Absolutely, Kevin. I think that is a point that is not uh, made enough in the discussion in Australia about Taiwan. But, you know, I wanted to get your views on this issue. I mean, we've talked about, um, you know, potential for conflict in the region. There's also, we haven't really talked about what's going on in the South China Sea, uh, the East China Sea, uh, but I wanted to get your views on um, how you see the relationship between Australia and China moving ahead in the future. I think it will be very difficult um, to go back where we were. The international environment has, of course, changed. Um, China has changed, yes, and Australia has also changed. Um, So I think what we could hope for is to have a stable relationship and to find areas where we can... um, uh, mutually cooperate, but it will be very difficult to go back to a period before the current, you know, geopolitical context between the United States and China. And to a certain extent, I feel that um, Australia has perhaps less of an agency than previously. Um, the current conflict and the current tension in the bilateral relationship. I feel is very much depend upon the context between Australia, between, sorry, between China and the United States. And the, the, the relationship between China and the United States to a, to a really big extent is dictating how Australia and how Australia's uh, relationship with China is going to operate. Um, and to a previous uh, point about, you know, who is destabilizing? Well, of course, the rising power, you can always say the rising power is always destabilizing. But the question is, is a fair, is a just? You know, when we look at the defense spending, um, yes, China defense, defense spending has gone up quite a lot in the past 10 to 20 years. But as a percentage of GDP, it has been actually been flat. It's been flat for the 20 years. So the question is, should China be spending the same amount on defense despite its increase, skyrocketing increase in GDP. So I think there's a lot of perspectives here on what we think is what's fair and what's not. Thank you. Uh, We have a couple of other questions. Peter, I might get um, your responses to that. Uh, But there is a question here about the lack of clarity on AUKUS uh, and whether that's related to the sensitive nature of the technology involved. Uh, And is the price tag related to, is it a price of entry fee to gain access to the UK and the US? And that's that's an interesting question because, of course, Australia will be um, providing funds to support US shipbuilding in order to make this deal happen. Yeah, of course it will, but that's only logical because we were the ones who asked and we're the ones who are getting the capability. I mean, I think this is overlooked. People raise the question about these submarines and sovereignty. I'm like, well, the first sovereign decision is we're with the government. We as a government and the Australian people went to the United States and the United Kingdom and asked if we could have access to this technology. And of course, you know, if you go down to the car yard and ask to buy a car, they're going to ask you to pay for it. That's just logic. Um, 
you know, it, it is will get us into, I think, also uh, a better way of doing it, though, by being in this trilateral pact. And I think this is where the United Kingdom is most important. I, I have to say, Global Britain is something they're pushing, but the British have their own economic problems. The war in Ukraine has really centred them strategically back on Europe. I wouldn't be counting on Britain being involved in the in the Far East. You know, otherwise it very much looks like a Singapore strategy without Singapore. Um, and uh, what I think it's really about. So for the British, it's about access to that reactor technology as well, and it's about cost sharing. We'll we'll be make, building submarines along with the British. That just makes it more efficient, more effective, and more cost effective. Um, and that's one of the big things. And there's also AUKUS Pillar 2, which we can talk about separately, which is the advanced capabilities, which is about all three nations sharing very advanced technology. And one of the reasons it's happening amongst these three countries is we share the greatest level of security assurance between the three countries. Richard Miles constantly talks about bringing Japan into the AUKUS Pact. The thing that's limiting that or didn't bring Japan in early on, in my personal view, is that the Japanese don't have the level of security standards. That's personal security vetting for individuals, cybersecurity um, mechanisms and defence security to maintain the secrets at the level that required to do for this type of technology. And I'm talking about Pillar 2 there, not nuclear-powered submarines, but that's the advanced capabilities like AI and cyber and hypersonics and, and those types of things. So I think there's, yeah, there's a little bit of um, bit of conjecture about um, what AUKUS is and what AUKUS is not. Um, I think the government's done a much, much better job this time around in selling AUKUS into the region. We, we've just got back from, from Singapore when I was with Beck. I've been in other parts of the region recently and the feedback that I've received from officials and people is they may or may not be necessarily happy with AUKUS sometimes, but they understand it much better now. There's much better clarity about the nuclear non-proliferation part for the submarine deal. And Generally speaking, we've seen Japan and Korea, the Philippines all come out in support of it. Singaporeans largely being supportive. The Indonesians having a mixed set of views, but largely saying in the end it's up to Australian interests. So I think there's been large acquiescence in in, in, the, in the region about um, this. And I, I would really encourage people to not fall into this notion of thinking this is about primacy, but looking at the, the policy context that these submarines are being put in, particularly around the DSR, this is about... I focus on national defence for Australia. This is on greater defence self-reliance for our country. And as the Prime Minister has been very clear and the Defence Minister has been very, very clear, they've made numerous statements to Parliament and speeches about the way sovereignty will work because these will be Australian sovereign capabilities under Australian command of which there will be Australian sovereign decisions about how they are used. And, you know, when we talk about the, the alliance with the United States of America, Yes, we have fought many wars with the United States of America. Some of them people agree with and some of them disagree. I'm, I'm on record as being thoroughly opposed to the war in Iraq, for instance, and thinking, you know, the ongoing um, engagement in Afghanistan was not conducive. Um, but these were sovereign decisions made by Australian governments. If we want to hold anyone to account for our involvement in those wars, it's not the United States of America, it's the governments of Australia at the time who made those sovereign decisions. And as Australian citizens, that's who we should be holding to account and for any future decision about how we use our military force.
I think going back to your point about uh, the regional responses to AUKUS, and as you point out, Peter, there are some sort of ongoing concerns, but I think there was a difference in the diplomacy between when AUKUS was announced and when the optimal pathway was announced that I think has had a sort of significant impact on how states responded to the second announcement. So, Kevin, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I've got a question here from David Andrews. Hi, David. And it's about this concept of labour and liberal approaches to foreign policy and whether that's a useful analytical framework or whether this is more of a political or rhetorical conceptions and whether the sort of the politics actually shape the decisions of foreign policymakers. Because it, it seems from our discussion, all three of us see more continuity perhaps than what we see that, uh, in change. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, with regard to what you were just saying before about the country countries, I said it's a tolerance of AUKUS. It's a tolerance of this, or the word that Peter used was acquiescence, which no one really thinks is a very good idea, but we have to live with it. That's basically the reality. That's the basic reality of what I've found. Um, coming back to it, look, there there is always a sort of uh, consistency between um labor and liberal on a lot of national security issues on the american alliance on on many issues where they have differed historically i mean if you're talking historically sometimes on issues uh, to do with for example um nuclear proliferation there's been sometimes a little difference and a, and a classic example from my own career is that um you know gareth evans uh, he put together you know a special high high team of experts on uh, nuclear non-proliferation in 1995 and as soon as the hard government came in first thing they they there was that they disbanded that because they didn't see that as being you know part of the view that the hard government had so but generally generally there is a consistency and there's been a, a surprising uh, in some ways, in other ways, maybe not surprising consistency on on national security, on China, on so many of these issues, uh, and um, this. Uh, so, I would say to answer the question you were saying before, it's usually not um, in the broader sense of foreign policy. Uh, it's not really that useful to look at the difference between labor and liberal. Sure, there have been differences, like I'll just point that one on in proliferation. You go back to 1972 and the recognition of the PRC over the ROC and various things like that. But generally, in, there is is there are certain base agreements, and there have been throughout Australian history, uh, on national security issues, on trade issues, on various things. So there's a similarity. So I don't think the labor liberal thing is really that useful uh, as a tool. So we do have a, a couple more questions. I might have time for one more. And Yun, I'm going to ask it to you. And it's a it's a question around trust. Uh, and I mean, this is a this is an important one, I think, in, in considering Australia's international relations. And it's uh, can how how can you explain how Australia can trust China if Australia is moving from agricultural to information tech uh, economy? So this is, I guess, a, a question about. Um, Australia's economic 
position with China and whether or not Australia can trust China, particularly in that kind of area of information economy. Did you have any views on that particular question? Trust. Um, well, trust first needs to be developed over time. And I don't think it necessarily comes from trade. Of course, trade relationship is one aspect relationship. And the more you trade with the, each other, the more you do develop a kind of trust in terms of, for example, oh, um, you can trust the other person to pay uh, for the goods or service on time. So that is a, one kind of trust. But despite the fact that China and Australia has highly complementary um, economic structures, the trust has declined. On the other hand, um, the Australia and United States often compete in certain industries, yet the two countries and the two governments still develop a high level of trust. So I think trust um, only small extent comes from a uh, uh, economic structure or a trade relationship, but to a more extent comes from um, history. Um, you know, we were talking about how Australia has been a hundred years of mateship with the United States and been following every single major conflict uh, with the United States since the World War II. That was in the speech by Humble, I believe. Um, so this kind of history, I think, is much more in important when it comes to developing trust. Now, of course, what China has done in terms of um, its, uh, for example, in terms of hacking or in terms of uh, intellectual property, those kind of tactics does not um, bode well, does not do well, uh, does not contribute to uh, trust between the two countries. But there are also other aspects. So it, trust comes from a lot of different aspects and you have to be built over time. Thank you. Uh, now, look, I'm, I have taken us 10 minutes over time, so I think we, we should leave it there. But I'm really grateful to our panellists, you and Peter and Kevin, for joining us. Uh, it's really nice to be in a discussion where there are disagreements and different viewpoints. And so I'm just really grateful um, to, to have you all along sharing your insights and your area of expertise. It's just been a really fascinating uh, discussion. So thank you. And thank you to our audience uh, for, for tuning in and for asking excellent questions as always. Uh, you can follow us uh, at Latrobe Asia and you can join our mailing list uh, and you will get a link to this, uh, this discussion uh, when those links are ready. So thank you all once again. Thank you, Bank. Thank you, everyone. It was an awesome discussion. Thank you.